The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, William Henry Harrison. The man found a fair amount of success on the battlefield, which turned into a successful career as a governor, which turned into the first modern presidential campaign. Slogans, songs, and some creative spinning of the truth gave him the keys to the White House. But before he could really make a difference, his very long speech on a very cold and wet inauguration day led to his early demise, just 31 days later. The oldest and the first president to die in office, POTUS number 9, William Henry Harrison. He's next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. We're joined by historian Robert Owens for this episode on POTUS number nine. Robert has a PhD in history from the University of Illinois and is currently a professor of history at Wichita State University. He's put together several terrific books about the difficult relationship between our country's expansion and the treatment of Native Americans. It's his book, Mr. Jefferson's Hammer, William Henry Harrison and the Origins of American Indian Policy that we want to dig into today. Robert, thanks for spending some time with us here on American POTUS. Oh, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I, I'm sure you get this a lot, but academics are just thrilled to have anybody who wants to talk about our stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, Robert, I really enjoyed this book. I really enjoy all your work. Thanks so much for being here. And let, let's start with Harrison's background. His his father was a hero of the Revolution, a signer of the Declaration, governor of Virginia. How did that heritage of being part of the elite Virginia gentry shape and drive William Henry Harrison? I think one of the things you have to understand about Harrison and, and a lot of sort of young aristocrats of his generation, especially from Virginia, is they, yes, they have this very prestigious background, right? He's one of the leading names, you know, from families of Virginia. But at the same time, the revolution really just sort of clobbers the Virginia gentry, particularly in terms of uh, their wealth. Of course, now, I try not to get too far into pity for them because, of course, a lot of this had to do with the fact not just the British army sort of running through and tearing stuff up, but the fact that the British offered freedom to slaves of rebels. And so there were huge, you know, tens of thousands of slaves run away to join the British. And, and that capital loss is one of the things that sort of really impacts the Virginia gentry, even, even though they end up winning the war, they're not the same financially. And so, and so with Harrison, then you have this guy who has a sort of expectation of sort of greatness and status. And yet, you know, economically, it's really not there. So, you know, primogeniture, the sort of eldest son inheriting everything, that had officially ended in the Revolutionary Era, but Harrison's older brother still gets most of the inheritance. And so what you have is this, you know, by the time William Henry Harrison's a teenager, um, he, you know, he kind of has to be uh, on the make uh, economically and socially. Um, he realized that he was going to need 
to un- unlike to previous generations where this sort of fortune and status is going to be handed to him, he's going to have to sort of do it for himself. So he, he tries a couple of things. He studies medicine for a while in Philadelphia, but that clearly didn't take. And then he does sort of arguably the opposite of medicine. He joins the army at a, at a rather inauspicious time because at that point the army was just getting clobbered out in the West and it was very unprestigious and low pay, but he joins that anyway. And actually, I like to draw the comparison. Harrison, this is not unusual for you know the younger sons of the aristocracy in Britain or in other parts of Europe, right? It's you know the even without the primogeniture, he has to sort of do something, so he joins the army. And and I would argue too, it's it's a very sort of classically American idea. By the time Harrison's in his early twenties, he sort of sees his future and his future success as coming from the West. You know, this this is the opportunity to reshuffle the deck, uh, to, you know, see if you can get a better hand. And and that's definitely where he's going to sort of, you know, uh, put all of his efforts. Let's talk about the West in Harrison's time when he's first mm-hmm. out there beginning his military service. What area did the Northwest Territory encompass and what were relations like at that moment when he began his military service with the various Native American tribes? Yeah, like I say, it was a terrible time to join, yeah. uh, arguably to join the army, unless you you, you do enjoy fighting. Right. Um, <laughs> so the the Northwest Territory, uh, or, or as Congress called it, the territory uh, northwest of the River Ohio, initially is huge. Right. Yeah. It's basically well, most of the what's going to become the Big Ten. Right. It's uh, <laughs> what what's going to become Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan. Wisconsin, and even uh, some parts of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. So it, in terms of landmass, it's quite enormous. And that territory they create between 1785 and 1787, that's basically going to be the nation's first experiment in trying to create co-equal states of the republic. That's actually, mm-hmm. students don't typically hear, but it's really, it's a really radical act, right? Mm-hmm. Previously in history, Countries didn't sort of bring in, or states didn't bring in co-equal states. They they just sort of had colonies. Uh, so this this is new. So on the one hand, it's sort of kind of very progressive and so forth. On the other hand, when it came to the Indians in the era, this is sort of a, a transitional period in the 1780s. Mm-hmm. Uh, the British had, in theory, ceded all this land east of the Mississippi, south of Canada, with the exception of Florida, to the United States. But of course, they hadn't actually consulted the Indians who live there and who are their yeah, allies. Yeah, yeah. And of course, they are going to be understandably furious about this. And and the United States goes through this really dramatic shift. Uh, 1784, 85, 86, they conduct some treaties with the Indians living there. And they're you know, kind of treaties in name only. They basically, they operate on what we call the conquest theory. Uh, essentially, you know, the United States is going to take your land and we don't owe you any compensation because you lost the war, which... Mm-hmm. Not a lawyer seems a little sketchy to begin with, but of course they also those peoples had not been conquered, and initially they're sort of really frustrated by this, and then increasingly it dawns on the Indians in this area that yeah, hey, we we don't have to hand over our land, we're we're willing to fight for this, right? Mm-hmm. Those treaties, I would argue, in the mid 1780s, really kind of poison the well for Indian relations, and so you you have the Shawnees, the Delawares, the Miamis. Uh, the Potawatomis and a bunch of others too, justly furious with the United States. Um, and even when Congress makes this sort of, again, they make this like 180 degree turn in 1787 and announce that, oh, Indians actually do have rights to their land and they need to be paid for them. By the time that happens, uh, the tribes are so angry 
that, you know, with, with Congress basically having tried to steal their lands, they had no intention of selling uh, the land, which again, for them had tremendous, not just economic, but you know, um, psychological and emotional connection, right? Mm-hmm. This is where our grandfathers are buried. Indian uh, religious leaders are going to say, hey, this is the great spirit told us to be here. So that's that's yeah. all going very poorly. So now the, the United States then gets in this odd situation by the late 1780s where they're officially saying, hey, we want to be just. We don't want to be like previous you know, uh, white powers. We're going to uh, try and deal fairly with the Indians. But to actually get them to come to the treaty table and, and get paid for their land, they feel they have to sort of beat them on the battlefield first. So it's this really, I, I would argue, and this is a very 18th century way of look. They, they love holding what seem to us mutually exclusive ideas mm-hmm. at the same time. We, you know, we want to treat you right. We're going to have to beat the crap out of you first uh, <laughs> to do this. And, and, and there's also this, you know, very strong thread. If you read George Washington, if you read uh, Henry Knox from this era, you know, we want this land. We have to have this land. But we don't want to look like the conquistadors when we're doing it either. Because again, remember, Americans are supposedly better than everybody else. So we want to, I guess, sort of have our cake and eat it too. And it's, you know, there are going to be a lot of, uh, shall we say, hiccups with, with that sort of conundrum. As he goes into that environment and is in the Northwest Territory, which, as you say, is immense, at the young age of 25, he's appointed secretary for the territory. At 26, he goes to Congress as the territory's delegate, and just about a year later, he's governor of the new Indiana Territory he had helped to create. How do you explain Harrison's rapid, very rapid political ascent at such a young age? Right. It seems kind of crazy today to throw that much responsibility at someone that young. Uh, I, I, but you know, trying to be historical about it, uh, people often did have to grow up pretty fast in the 18th century. Again, you know, in Harrison's case, he was only 21 uh, when Anthony Wayne, General Anthony Wayne, uh, was trusting him to to carry messages back and forth at the Battle of Fallen Timbers and get shot at and so forth. So, you know, he he does have that type of experience. Further, uh, Harrison actually had quite a bit of practical experience with the region, whereas a lot of people in government maybe didn't at that time. It's also, I think, you know, to be fair, you have to consider the possibility that there weren't a lot of people clamoring for that job necessarily, yeah. uh, right. given that it's there are all these huge headaches uh, that are going to come with it. And, and I, I do think we should note that Harrison would actually spend quite a bit of time uh, as Indiana's governor complaining that he was underpaid, uh, massively so. Uh, and actually, you can do this if you take the, the inflation conversion tables. You, know, you can get them off Google or something. If you take his salary, uh, which was two thousand dollars a year for sort of everything, uh, if you adjusted that for inflation, he'd be making less than fifty thousand dollars a year today. So you know he could easily do way better working for the post office than governing you know this territory that's eventually going to be like four states. So by comparison, actually, I went a step further. Uh, the president at the time was making about $25,000 a year, which mm. today would be 580000 wow. So that actually would wow. be pretty sweet. With, with Harrison, the, the other thing I find so really strange about, you know, they picked this really young guy. Again, he comes certainly comes from a good family. He has a, a, a decent uh, resume in terms of military service and so forth. But he's actually, we forget, he was actually a John Adams appointee, but uh, he's and and the territorial governor is absolutely dependent on the president. He's not elected. Uh, you have to keep the president happy. And yet uh, Jefferson and Madison repeatedly 
reappoint him. So he actually managed to keep uh, all those sort of you know disparate uh, presidents, uh, you know, reasonably content. So with those presidents, we know that, as you said before, there was this urge of expansion, but also right. treating the Indians fairly. How would you summarize Harrison's personal views? toward the Indian tribes he was he was working with through these land sessions and negotiating these various treaties. Well, I'm going to I'm going to I'll start with Jefferson, I think, just yeah, because he, because he's, you know, clearly, you know, not a knock on Harrison, but it, Jefferson's clearly the bigger thinker, right? The, the deeper mm-hmm. thinker on these things. But so Jefferson again this 18th century quirk I I find had this habit of holding simultaneously uh, mm-hmm. incompatible ideas. Uh, my favorite example of Jefferson would be the empire of liberty, right? Mm-hmm. This is vision for the United States. Well, of course, you think about that, you know, empire, dun, 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 <laughs> dun, dun, and liberty, it doesn't really sort of go together, but Jefferson just kind of dismisses those things. So uh, when it comes to Indian policy, Jefferson seems to basically have convinced himself that he could have Indian lands very quickly and very cheaply. Uh, while benefiting both Indians and Americans, because you know, Jefferson doesn't like conflict, and he likes to think all this is going to work out and everybody's going to be happy, which, again, when you sort of look back on it, just seems pretty absurd. And, and in terms of Indians, it's also really interesting. You know, Jefferson's views towards African-Americans, it's kind of hard to find a word other than racist to describe them, right? This is He has these, you know, despite lots of evidence, he can, insists that there's this inherent biological difference between blacks and whites. He doesn't actually seem to be racist in our understanding towards Indians. He, he he feels their culture is sort of fascinating but inferior. But for for lack of a better phrase, he seemed to believe Indians would make wonderful white people uh, if they could just basically completely abandon their cultures and and become uh, as Anglo Americans. And he actually talks about you know Indians and whites should intermarry and then everybody's going to be happy. Uh, he never is able to sort of say that about African Americans, which understandably makes the Sally Hemings thing all the weirder and mm-hmm, more troubling. But mm-hmm. um, so okay, is so that? Too much prologue, probably. So no, when no. so he and this is actually part of built out of a fear of what Napoleon is doing, potentially Louisiana territory. In 1803, Har- uh, Jefferson directs Harrison uh, to basically to, to buy up Indian land as quickly and cheaply as possible, and he rather explicitly tells him it's okay to cheat and deceive when he's doing this. He declared that it would also be for Indians' uh, benefit at the same time because when and he actually says. Uh, sort of their excess lands, their surplus lands, if they would just give up hunting, which he, again, is sort of, he has this fallacious idea that Indians live primarily by hunting, which is really not the case east of the Mississippi. Uh, well, if they just sell that, that excess land to us, well, then we'll have it, uh, and then we'll all take up Anglo-American-style farming, and everybody will be happy. So on, on the one hand, they're sort of ignoring how good, actually, Indian women were at farming, because you know, farming is supposed to be a man work, and, and also maintain this sort of fallacious idea about uh, Indians being primarily uh, hunters. So I, I would say with Jefferson, his idea is if they will just sell us their quote-unquote surplus lands – then they will have to become farmers like us, and that will be better for them because they'll become civilized. Uh, basically, the Jeffersonians are taking this um, civilizing – I'm using air quotes that you can't see mm. – <laughs> uh, civilizing program the Federalists had had, and basically they just have absolutely no patience, right? They want this to happen you know, in months uh, rather than decades. So in terms – so then to get to your actual question, for Harrison – 
I don't know. I, I really don't think he, again, put maybe as much thought into it as Jefferson did. He simply knew he had orders to buy up Indian land as quickly as and cheaply as possible. And once he figured out that he could do so through uh, essentially a rigged system, right? I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in the book going through, perhaps in too much detail, on how these treaty quote unquote negotiations worked. And it's really sort of slanted uh, to the American advantage. Harrison figures out he got really, he could do this. He could do effectively. And regardless of who was president, they liked the fact that he could buy this land, big chunks of it very quickly, very cheaply. The fact that he made a point of buying the land, usually from Indians who didn't actually live on it. Mm -hmm. That that would, you know, details. Mm -hmm. Uh, They they weren't as troubled by this. So Mm -hmm. he, he realizes that, you know, again, for Jefferson, I think it's probably more pragmatic than sort of philosophical. You know, this is how I keep the boss happy. Uh, I've got a growing family. This is how I keep my, you know, my salary coming in. And another issue, he took on the issue of slavery. In the Northwest Territories, uh, slavery was not permitted, but he really worked hard to ne- to negate that original prohibition of slavery there. Why was he so determined to take on what was a really divisive issue? So when I, when I you know, uh, demonstrate this to students, and I talk about it's uh, Article 6 of the Northwest Ordinance prohibits slavery. And actually, the wording is sort of in no way ambiguous. There shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in the said territory. I'm not a lawyer, but to me, <laughs> that sounds like <laughs> there shall be neither slavery. But all the governors of that those territories immediately sort of said, well, this is not retroactive because there were slave owners there. And I think Harrison, that sort of factors into uh, his equation a lot. When he first gets to Indiana, there aren't a lot of people living there, white people, I should say. And the older, more influential ones tended to be slave owners. And so he's clearly trying to sort of strike up an alliance with them. Uh, at the same time, I would argue <laughs> – just you know, taking sides, it would have been really weird for a son of the Virginia planter gentry to not see slave labor as essential to agricultural success. I mean, this is he had literally been brought up in this, so I, I think he really sort of pursues this. You know, he he and he tries all kinds of different tactics. He repeatedly they petition Congress to. Uh, remove uh, Article 6 and allow slavery legally. Uh, Congress doesn't seem terribly interested in doing that. He also comes up with some workarounds. Uh, Most infamously, in 1805, they pass this law that says, oh, well, you you can bring a slave into Indiana, but then they have to become an indentured servant. And again, I'm using my invisible air quotes. Um, Well, again, there are a lot of problems with that. Uh, For one thing, legally, a slave can't enter into a contract because legally they don't have any rights like that, but also indentured servants tended to be four to seven years. Uh, and I've I've actually seen these. You know, they, they still have the, the documents. There were some slaves who were brought into Indiana as teenagers and signed up for 70, 80, 90 year indentures. I mean, it's just yeah. Well, by the way, the absolute worst part of that is, and I don't know if they were being funny or if this is just like the legal the legalese. Uh, and then it would say uh, at the completion of which he's free. It's like, no, oh, yeah, that, hey, you that'll, know. that'll be a great, <laughs> yes. he, he's been dead for 30 years, yeah. but now he can be free. So doesn't seem like a real sincere thing to me. I'm, I may be wrong, but I, no. I again, uh, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a right. lawyer, Alan, but, um, but you play so, one at work. Yeah. Yeah. And so, <laughs> right. um, and to, then, so politically this, I, I would argue Harrison misreads the situation, uh, because 
he, you know, it probably makes some sense to be a pro-slavery advocate in 1802, 1803. But what he, he really is sort of slow on the uptake, uh, or just doesn't want to recognize is because of, of Article 6, and because the, the federal government doesn't seem interested in expanding slavery in that region, you have this increasing influx of people who move to the Ohio Valley, specifically because they don
it, it, certainly with Harrison's treaties, I see really no evidence of that. And in, and in fact, uh, Harrison and Jefferson repeatedly talk about how awful it is. The, the whiskey trade was basically like the drug trade today. It was really sort of hard to stop. But they're complaining about this. So Harrison initially thinks, uh, oh, the profits could be great because he'll you know uh, put an end to uh, alcohol consumption. But you know, the message keeps evolving. And increasingly, the prophet says, you know, also something the great spirit doesn't like is the fact that we keep selling our land to these Americans. And, you know, and that, of course, is like the one thing really William Henry Harrison's really good at. <laughs> this is, and so <laughs> this kind of brings them to sort of, you know, a head on collision. Mm-hmm. And, and this is really sort of the, the start of, of uh, troubles there. In terms of Tecumseh, uh, we, we've actually evolved a fair amount in our, our thinking with this. Originally, he was just part of his younger brother's flock and sort of barely noticed by American officials. In fact, the earliest mentions of him, they actually just call him the prophet's brother. They don't even give him a name, which I find fascinating. But uh, but he became increasingly important as a recruiter for the prophet uh, with ambitions to bring all Indians under that banner. Because again, Tecumseh, the warrior, he has these sort of pan-Indian notions himself. And his eloquence and reputation as a warrior brought him to Harrison's attention. And increasingly, Harrison actually starts seeing Tecumseh as, as the primary threat. For a long time, historians gave a simple dichotomy. Uh, Tecumseh is a military and political genius, while his brother was this religious visionary. Recently, though, uh, Gregory Dowd and John Sugden and others have made, I, th- I think, sort of a very good corrective to this. It's you, you can't draw that distinct line uh, because you know Tecumseh was wasn't just sort of a militarist op- opportunist. Uh, he actually does seem to have been a true believer, uh, and the prophet was also, I think, an equal partner in terms of talking about strategy and politics of this. So you know that's. Just caveat there. We know that they came to a major um, battle and that Harrison's victory over Tecumseh and the prophet in the Battle of Tippecanoe, he used a great effect in his later presidential campaign. Can right. you tell us a bit about that battle? <laughs> yeah, and I would argue in some ways very bizarrely so. So, <laughs> um, so pro- um, Battle of Tippecanoe is going to take place outside of Prophetstown, which was this multi-tribal village the prophet established in Indiana. Uh, it's on the Tippecanoe River, which feeds into the Wabash. Uh, the location today, it's a, it's a few miles outside of West Lafayette, Indiana. So uh, Purdue, you know, university country. Harrison, by 1809-1810, certainly by 1811, sees the prophet and this growing movement as a real sort of potential threat uh, to uh, Indiana. And he decides uh, that, you know, they need to be dispersed. Harrison's looking at this sort of a preemptive campaign. Uh, and he's the, – the Battle of Tippecanoe is going to take place largely because Tecumseh, Harrison knew, was actually out of town. Uh, he was actually in the American South trying to recruit more tribes to join uh, his, his brother's movement. And Harrison decides, I'm going to form an army, which legally he sort of has the right to do as the, as the territorial governor. Militia army, they're going to march up to Prophetstown. Basically, force it to disperse, and Harrison's thinking this will sort of avoid a great uh, war. That ends up being actually a terrible, terrible idea. Uh, but I, I point out, in, in Harrison's defense, a lot of people of whites on the frontier actually thought, "No, this is you need to take this preemptive move." This is uh, Kentuckians thought it was a good idea. Some of them actually volunteered to go with him. William Clark of Lewis and Clark fame uh, in, from Missouri, he thought this was the right idea. Uh, ends up being a terrible one. Uh, so Harrison marches up towards uh, Prophetstown, 
and they camp along the Tippecanoe River. And on November 6th, 1811, they have this really tense meeting with the prophet who's basically saying, uh, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> We're deep in Indian country. You know, Harrison says, you got to move. You got to disperse. The prophet says, yeah, I don't think we're going to do that. And both sides, they sort of break up. They agree they're going to go ahead and talk on November 7th. I, I think both of them expected there would be a fight on the 7th. Um, now, the battle itself uh, on November 7th was nearly a disaster for the Americans. Um, Harrison did have his men sleep in their uniforms and they had their muskets at the ready. But, uh, and this is, I, I think, really interesting. The army literally did not have enough axes with them. And so they were not able to fortify their camp. Uh, and remember, Harrison stayed under Anthony Wayne. He knew when you're in Indian country, you got to fortify your camp, put up you know something, little wall or something every night. Uh, but he wasn't able to do that. And so the prophet's men actually launched a surprise attack right before dawn on November 7th. And the, the battle itself uh, actually goes very poorly for the Americans for quite a while. Harrison actually takes more casualties, both in total number and percentage. And he, in particular, he lost a number of officers. And that really, uh, especially at the time, was considered a huge problem, right? Just a liability that he had you know, lost as many uh, of his officers. Um, and in fact, some newspapers, this is part of why I think it's so bizarre that it becomes so huge in the William Henry Harrison story, Tippecanoe, because uh, some newspapers initially said this was an American defeat. Harrison's men, eventually the prophet's men run out of ammunition, they withdraw. Harrison and the army, they march in and they, they burn down Prophetstown. But it's uh, a really kind of you know dicey victory. But uh, this, I, I make the argument, Harrison had such a good political machine back in Indiana uh, by this point. In particular, uh, he was personal friends with the only newspaper editor. <laughs> the uh, that helps. For example. Yeah. That, that helps a lot. That helps yeah. a lot. And the fact that the Madison administration, you know, we're getting – more tensions with Britain, the Madison administration uh, is willing to accept this as a, a quote unquote victory because they don't want to look bad. This actually leads to the, a tremendous spin campaign and it becomes uh, you know, remembered as this great American victory, which again, I'd, I'd say it's really kind of you know dicey uh, at best. Um, so the, the purpose, of course, was to try, we're going to disperse the prophet's followers and uh, that'll be the end of this. Uh, and again, that, that's sort of the official narrative. But of course, in the months after this, all over Indiana and Illinois, there are uh, attacks on isolated settler cabins and people get murdered. And, and most historians of this think, you know, this is probably guys who'd lost a friend at Prophetstown or sort of taking revenge. I see. Um, the, the, the analogy I like is Harrison saw a hornet's nest and said, oh, I can fix that. And he whacks it with a sword. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, well, mm -hmm. the nest is destroyed, but now you got a bunch of angry hornets. And instead mm -hmm. of being in one place where you could kind of watch them, they're just all over the place. So, so it helps to have a really good political machine, I guess. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> and the next year, he, he did learn some lessons from that almost debacle. Mm. At Tippecanoe, he, he leads troops during the War of 1812 in the West and into Canada, has a whole string of successes. Right. But then at the end of the war, he's no longer in the army. What, how did that happen? Yeah. And, and by, I find it really bizarre that his future political campaign doesn't focus on his actual accomplishments during mm -hmm. the War of 1812, mm -hmm. which were pretty good. Yeah. Uh, typically, it was weird. So Harrison was probably one of the best American generals in the Western theater. Not that if you study that war, it's not a high bar exactly. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but one of the, the real problems – in the War of 1812 is the Secretary of War was a guy named John Armstrong, who I'll, I'll be polite and say is not remembered fondly uh, as the Secretary of War. Um, given how politically motivated the war was, it's probably appropriate 
that Armstrong spent so much time promoting his favorites and ignoring competent officers. And there was a lot of that in the 19th century. Actually being successful uh, could actually hurt you uh, because people got very jealous. U.S. Grant ran into this during the Civil War for a while. At one point, after you know Harrison had these amazing, really important strategic victories, uh, invading Canada and so forth, he and Armstrong get in kind of a spat. And I, I would argue at this point, Harrison's Virginia gentry aristocrat instincts kick in, and he sort of sends this letter to Madison, and he resigns in a huff. Now, I really don't think he wanted to resign. I think what he wanted was Madison to say, "Oh no, you're one of my most valuable guys. I, you know, please come back," but. Madison, uh, Harrison didn't realize, was actually out of town uh, at the time. Oh. And Armstrong gets this uh, resignation letter, says, OK, we'll accept this. And he puts <laughs> uh, one of his buddies in. And I, and I argue uh, in the book. So after this, uh, when the war is actually over, and of course, Madison's back. One of the first things Madison does with Harrison is he asks him to uh, try and deal, basically get the tribes that had been fighting against the United States to sign a peace treaty. And he has Harrison do that partly because he, he's very qualified for the job, but also he's trying you know, this sort of a sop to Harrison's ego saying, hey, no, you're really valuable. I'm sorry about that. So, But yeah, the, the War of 1812 is an absurdly political and politically divisive war. So uh, yeah, Armstrong's just a nightmare. <laughs> just awful. <laughs> Absolutely awful. In the years after that war, as you detail in the book, Harrison survived a lot of political attacks, scandal, eventually becoming senator, and as we know, president in 1841. How was he successful in those intervening years in, in building up that campaign that ultimately uh, took him in albeit briefly, to the White House. Sure. Uh, All right. yeah. So the 1840 campaign is famously known as the Log Cabin Campaign. It's actually not really Harrison's brainchild, but he goes along with it. It's remembered in some ways as the first modern presidential campaign, which is not a compliment. Right. It, <laughs> it focused not so much on issues. It was already about image and marketing. And Democrats had basically tried to paint Harrison as this country bumpkin, right? By this point, he was a, a, a relatively well-to-do farmer in Western Ohio. Uh, but they, they tried to, oh, you know, he's just this sort of hick sitting on his front porch drinking hard cider. And here, the Whigs, for once, the Democrats, of course, had had a lot of success with Andrew Jackson. He's a, he's a frontier guy. He's a warrior. And the Whigs and Harrison actually decided to lean into this which was just political genius. So uh, they made a hard pitch that Harrison, you know, hey, he's, a, he's just like you guys. He's not, right? His father, right. Signed the, his father signed the Declaration of Independence. He's not <laughs> like everybody else. But, oh, he's just, he just likes drinking hard cider, and he likes hanging out on his front porch of his cabin. So essentially, they steal from the Jacksonian Democrats' playbook, and they, they paint Martin Van Buren, the sitting president, as this uncaring aristocrat who's not helping America through this horrible financial depression, the Panic of 1837. Uh, and that, that ends up being good enough. You know, He yeah. actually rides into the White House on that. Yeah. If he had lived more than his 31 days that we know he was in office. What, what, what do we know about his plans for the presidency? What were his priorities? Actually, no, he's not in there very long, obviously, but you do get a good, a pretty good sense. If you read his inaugural address, you know, if you have several hours uh, <laughs> to, to do so, he actually lays out the plan pretty well. Uh, the Democrats had talked a lot about uh, the beauty of the independent treasury uh, and their fiscal policy, which given that the fact we were in the worst depression we'd ever had up to that point was an odd choice, uh, I'll say. But Whigs, uh, they actually don't have a huge platform, again, during the campaign, right? They basically run on William Henry Harrison being this uh, lovely man. But the thing to, to understand about Harrison and his inaugural address 
uh, he'd gone along with this, right? The log cabin campaign, but it really kind of got under his skin. This idea, you know, again, he, he'd been to a couple years of college. He was, he was an aristocrat. He was not a bumpkin. And it bothered him that people were sort of, even his own supporters were saying, you know, he was this, basically this hick. So he decides in this inaugural address uh, to give a very thorough, very technical recitation of like 8,000 words, uh, right? That's why it takes about two hours. So the, the his platform, again, he's, it was basically Whig orthodoxy. Uh, he criticized Andrew Jackson's use of the veto. Jackson had the record for many, many years for presidential vetoes. Uh, he criticized the independent treasury. Uh, Harrison and the Whigs wanted to bring back the Bank of the United States, uh, which actually I thought was a pretty good idea. The concentration of power in the executive under Jackson, he criticizes that. Uh, he criticizes the, the spoil system, basically giving all these government jobs to your political supporters. Now, Harrison, in 1841, right, he's actually calling for uh, the, the idea that in the federal bureaucracy and these civil service jobs, you should actually be qualified. Which shouldn't seem like that radical notion, but I would point out it takes almost the rest of the 19th century for that to become a fact. So he he calls for a civil service reform. I'm not sure why that took two hours, but he does. Uh. Right. So what what did his death mean for the office of the presidency for the nation? How did the nation respond to it, and, and what longer term impact, if any, did that have on the office? So Harrison's the first president to actually die while in office. And I, I think it's fair to say the nation basically freaks out. Hmm. Uh, even a lot of people didn't like Harrison thought. Newspapers, newspaper editors, uh, ministers preached about, we were being punished by God. Uh, we had done something wrong and he punished us by killing our president. You know, that's, that's the only possible explanation. Not, you know, he, he got sick and died. So for a lot of people, there was a tremendous amount of hand-wringing. I would point out Andrew Jackson, who inexplicably is still alive at this point. Jackson was not nearly so troubled by this. Uh, in fact, his quote uh, on this, and I should point out there was a perception, you know, and there's something to it, that Henry Clay was basically trying to be a shadow president and sort of pushing Harrison to, to make a lot of moves. And Jackson's <laughs> report on his former comrade in arms uh, dying was, a kind and overruling providence has interfered to prolong glorious union and the happy Republican system, which General Harrison and his cabinet was preparing to destroy under the dictation of the profligate demagogue Henry Clay. Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> sort of, that was a you know, real classy statement. He, he, yeah. he didn't. Yeah, he didn't even bother saying no offense. Uh, wow, first, no offense, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> with all with all due respect, I'm maybe really glad maybe they just left that out when it was quoted. Maybe you, you, you in his defense, know. yeah, he, he ran out of ink uh, and they didn't get that. <laughs> right, part. Yeah, right. so, uh, <laughs> yikes! Harrison is the only president thus far to have had a grandson who also became mm. president. Benjamin right. Harrison, president from eighteen eighty nine to ninety three. Do we know? Did they have any type of relationship? Did they know each other, or was was uh, Harrison alive for long enough for his grandson to know him? So Benjamin was only seven when his grandfather became president, uh, but I suspect uh, because they actually both lived in North Bend, Ohio. I, I Harrison, so many criticisms we can throw at Harrison. He was absolutely a family guy. He really liked to spend. So I would imagine, yeah, they probably had a pretty decent relationship. Um, now, uh, Benjamin wasn't at the inauguration, but I, in terms of sort of influencing him down the road, my favorite part of the story is even though he's just a little kid, uh, when his grandfather, you know, gives this long speech and then, uh, dies afterward, 
when Benjamin Harrison was inaugurated, he actually made a point. Uh, his address was about half the length. Yeah, very uh, smart know, fairly, sh- yeah. fairly short. And he wore special thermal underwear under his suit because <laughs> he was not – he was really trying to avoid uh, getting dangerously ill. So if nothing else, grandpa taught him that. Uh, it's Im- important to learn the lessons of history, which we say all the time on American POTUS. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of those key lessons is uh, comfortable, protective underwear. Is yes. A must. Yes. <laughs> yes yeah. All right, Robert, I have a few personal questions as if, okay. th- you know, thermal underwear advice <laughs> isn't enough. We asked the same question of all the presidents that were also generals. What title meant the most to William Harrison? Was it president or general? Now that that is a really tough one. I, I'm I'm going to go with general just because the impression I got is Harrison. The the more I looked into this stuff, he really loved the army. He loved being an officer in the army, and and the only reason I think he leaves is he just you know I'm never going to make enough money doing this. Right? He had just gotten married, and he wants you know. So I, I'm going to say general. Uh, I, th- I think if they had drastically increased his salary in the army, uh, yeah, he might have he might have stuck around for a while. That goes along with all the other presidents yeah, that have been generals. Well, I, you know, it's you, you got to admit in terms of not only salary but also the retirement plan is amazing. You know. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Secret Service code name would it have been Tippecanoe for him, or is there a different <laughs> one that could have been used for him? Maybe something that's related to his stubborn streak of not wearing a jacket. Perhaps I don't so, know. Uh, I would say tip a, tip a canoe is good, but it, it's almost too on the nose, mm-hmm. right? I, I thought maybe a cabin boy, uh, uh-huh. just, you know, because <laughs> yeah. that at least would conjure up images of Chris Elliott for those. Yeah, of Chris, us yeah, of a, of a that's age. exactly where I was going. With <laughs> uh, <that. Yes. laughs> but uh, yeah, tip canoe might be a little too on the nose, but um, yeah, they, but it's certainly acceptable. <laughs> So Harrison obviously made some bad inauguration day choices, which led to his death. But was he in good health overall? Did he stay fairly fit as a guy? Okay. Now, this one I'm really glad. uh, I'm glad you asked this because, first first off, for a man in his late 60s, Harrison was actually uh, relatively good health. Um, He had some knee arthritis. Um, and he did actually have a long history of digestive problems. Um, I, I don't want to say he was the runt of the litter, but if you ever see like, you know, his father for the time was enormous, right? He was over six feet tall. He's over 200 pounds. Uh, William Henry Harrison was like five, seven and fairly skinny, but you know, he, he actually, for a guy in his late sixties, he was in pretty decent shape. Uh, and his supporters, of course, would repeatedly talk about, Hey, he's this old Indian fighter. He's tough. Uh, cause people did, by the way, ag- again, uh, criticize him. That was one of the charges was he, remember he is our oldest president up to that point. Uh, and Democrats are saying, this guy's too old to be, which is weird because Jackson was also pretty old, but the Democrats had sort of, you know, made fun of him for this. And it's actually, uh, I think the reason Harrison, you know, he gives this long inaugural address, partly to serve, you know, from intellectual sort of insecurity, but the fact that he's standing there without a top coat or a hat, um, he also uh, refused to take a, a covered carriage to the inauguration. He rode his horse, right? Because he's actually, it, it, it's odd. He, the, the fact that he's sort of unprepared for the cold that day, he was trying to show, oh, how robust and sort of, you know, and youthful he was. Also, by the way, even after that two hour inaugural address, he attends three other parades. So I, I, that same day. So for anybody, it would have been a taxing day. But, but here's the, the, 
the real meat of this. So we have for years, and I said, it, I think myself, uh, for years, we just assumed it's pneumonia, right? He, he was out in the cold too long, sure. weakened his immune system. He gets pneumonia. The thing is the last decade or so, uh, medical historians far shrewder on this than me have actually looked at the description of his symptoms. And that doesn't actually, it doesn't seem to actually point to pneumonia. Uh, for example, his lungs were fine. In fact, you know, if your readers have access to uh, – listeners have access to New York Times, uh, I have a t- 2014 New York Times article, What Really Killed William Henry Harrison uh, by Jane McHugh and Philip uh, McCoyack. And they argue the symptoms actually part, uh, point more to something uh, we call enteric fever, basically uh, some nasty bacterial infection like cholera or typhoid. Uh, partly because his his symptoms, he was turning blue, his his extremities were getting cold. That's not usually what happens with pneumonia. Also, uh, they point to Washington D.C. at this time was notorious for its terrible water. Yeah. Uh, yeah, partly, partly it's the yeah. elevation, but also uh, there was literally open sewage like seven blocks from where the White House got its water. So that actually uh, makes a lot more sense. Uh, in fact, also if you, know, you had future, you had Zachary Taylor. Uh, is going to die from some type of a fever like that. Mm-hmm. Um, not too long after he leaves office, James K. Polk, who was actually quite a bit younger uh, mm-hmm. and seems stronger, dies of that. They also in the, the article point out uh, Harrison's indigestion. He w- he the sort of standard treatments for the day actually would have hindered his uh, uh, his own uh, uh, alimentary canals ability to fight off these infections. It would have killed some of the good bacteria. So I, I think. All those things combined, I, I think it's much more likely that he died from some type of basically unclean water. Uh, so in, in that sense, uh, you know, I, I, it's a way better story. I know if he just gets pneumonia uh, <laughs> for being a, a schmuck and, and not putting on a coat. Yeah. But that seems far more likely. And I would also point out, though, e- even with this, you know, the cholera, a lot of people way younger than him, healthier than him, died from that in this era, too. Because it's just, you know, before you have antibiotics, this stuff is really really dangerous um so you know it's yeah it's, <laughs> i love making fun of him for not wearing the coat but <laughs> it's i i don't think that it, there's well i'll put it this way there's a very good possibility that's not what actually he could have worn six coats and you know you drink infected water that's still going to get you as with most things it's way more complicated mm-hmm. than we read mm-hmm. in the headline but it's, it's my job to complicate the narrative and ir- irritate the students <laughs> good job good job <laughs> All right, Robert, do you have a memorable quote or moment from Harrison's public service? I'll be it short. Well, yeah. So uh, in terms of quotes, unfortunately, Harrison isn't quite Lincoln. Lincoln's wonderfully (laughs) quotable. Uh, But I, again, going back to this odd obsession with Tippecanoe, he doesn't get nearly enough credit for his defense of Fort Meigs. Uh, in Northwest Ohio during the War of 1812, that was incredibly important. He does a terrific job. And the fact that he he's able to hold out there, that makes the British invasion of Northwestern Ohio untenable. He should get way more credit for that. Uh, and, he, and he really doesn't. My final question for you, other than his legacy of dying after 31 days in office, mm. in just one or two sentences, can you describe his legacy? Okay, I'm going to say I can do this in two. Uh <laughs> Harrison, I, I think, was the archetype of American leadership in the early days of the Republic. He was hardworking, ambitious, and patriotic, but also quite willing to exploit others, especially Indians and African Americans, to pursue those goals. Interesting. Robert, where can our listeners learn more about your work and, and what's next for you? Oh, 
Thank you very much. Yes, uh, yes. So uh, I actually have two monographs and a document reader um, available. Uh, Amazon. I, mm-hmm. you, you look me up on Amazon. You can get those. Uh, the Mr. Jefferson's Hammer. Uh, my second book, uh, Red Dreams, White Nightmares, is all about sort of the fear of pan-Indian um, confederacies. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the, the document readers for like uh, uh, undergrads and so forth. It's called uh, Indian Wars uh, and the Struggle for Eastern North America. Mm-hmm. That, um, so there are those. Uh, in terms of what I'm doing now, I am supposedly finishing up uh, <laughs> a manuscript. Um, well, this one, man, uh, it's on sort of the intersection of diploma of murder and diplomacy on the mm-hmm. early American frontier. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's also a, a separate chapter on suicides. So it's just been a delight. Wow. Uh, sure, just particularly particularly in the midst of a pandemic i thought wow what a, what a brilliant choice uh yeah yeah I, yeah i keep saying I'm, the next book's going to be about the history of happy kittens and puppies who lived a long full life um boy robert yeah. you are fun at a party i bet i tell you yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well again you know if, if you need people to leave uh just call me over and I, you know, no. five minutes we, we can clean the room we can clean the room so but yeah, so that that's that's I'm continuing that now. Um, I'm, I should be yeah. Well, I will be on sabbatical actually in the spring semester next year. So looking forward to another research trip and uh, yeah, you know, So that's that continuing on the sort of vein of early American frontier Indian white interaction is sort of the, the general thrust of those. I see. Well, Robert, thank you so much for a fascinating discussion today and for joining us on American POTUS. Oh well, thank you guys so much. I, I really uh, appreciate. It. It's, you, you might think, we like I say academics love talking about our work uh, so yeah, we just we don't get to do it very often so <laughs> thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast if you have a moment please rate and review this show on the player you're listening to right now we appreciate every word from everyone that listens to and participates in the podcast We would like to thank author Robert Owens for joining us on this episode about William Harrison. More information on his books, along with all our other terrific experts, can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. While you're there on our website, drop us a note. We'd love to see your questions or comments on this episode or suggestions you might have for future topics. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow or like us on Facebook or Twitter so you'll be the first to know about new episodes and announcements. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from William Henry Harrison, quote, There is nothing more corrupting, nothing more destructive of the noblest and finest feelings of our nature than the exercise of unlimited power.